0: Please turn again to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. I love this analogy of a race, running the race with uh, endurance. That, for me, is the most helpful picture of the pilgrimage that we're engaged in. This is not a dash, it's not a sprint. Uh, fast starts don't uh, count. You don't always have to be the quickest person in order to run. Sometimes we uh, run slowly. Sometimes we hardly run at all. Sometimes we seem to run in the same place. Um, sometimes we uh, run alone. Sometimes we run in the company of others. Sometimes we fall down and skin our hands and knees. Sometimes we run to the music of heaven. Sometimes uh, we just uh, run doggedly without any emotional incentive. It's, It's just a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian. We run with endurance the race that's set before us. I've pointed out before that the doctrine of eternal security, as I understand it, is essentially that those who have been truly regenerated, those that have been born again, will endure to the end. One mark that we belong to the Lord Jesus is that we keep on keeping on. We never give up. We never give up. We never, never give up. Now, there are, as I said last week, some incentives, some helps to running. One is to look uh, around us at those that have run before this great catalog of saints that the author gives us in chapter 11. Men and women like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Deborah and Barak and and David and the prophets, others that ran faithfully who witnessed to us that faith matters, that it's worth it to endure. And then we uh, take that quick look inside to see what hindrances there might be within us, something that's slowing us down, something that keeps us unfocused, that keeps us from from uh, running well, something that impedes our strength and our speed, and uh, then we look look off to Jesus, who is the forerunner of our faith, the one who has already run the race for us, who showed it, who shows us uh, from his own life and from the, his own destiny that it's well worth it to run with endurance. And then finally, we look on to the end. We realize that what God is doing is making us more and more. Like himself. We are becoming what we will become. Now, he closes that section, the passage that we looked at last week, with this wonderful word of encouragement in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, a quotation from Isaiah 35. Uh, those of you that are now runners or have run in the past, you know what it's like to round that uh, last bend and head for home and to have uh, your knees begin to wobble and your muscles are burning and you say to your feet, come on feet, keep moving. And that's what the author encourages us to do. Continue to run, no matter how tired you may be, no matter how innervated, no matter how difficult the race may be. And then, secondly, make straight paths for your feet. That's also a quotation from the Old Testament from Proverbs 4. The next line of the proverb explains the statement, make make straight paths for your feet. The wise man says, don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left. In other words, keep on doggedly doing the will of God. That's what endurance is. It's not clenching your teeth and and, and making balls out of your fists and deciding you're going to do better. It's rather continuing to do what God has called you to do, no matter what. Counterindications, no matter what what pressure you're receiving, no matter how much opposition you're getting, you just keep on doing what God has called you to do. You make straight paths for your feet. And then he drops the athletic metaphor and he says the same thing in pure ethical terms. Verse 14, he's simply repeating, I believe, what he said before. Verse 14, pursue, keep on Pursuing peace with all men, Christians and non Christians. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, I believe the NIV says pursue holiness. I couldn't find my NIV this morning and I had to dig up my old NASB. Uh, but I believe the NIV says pursue holiness. Struck me as I read that that passage that that's what uh, C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity. That's Christianity boiled down to its essence. That's a a wonderful little vignette, a picture of what a Christian ought to look like. They are peaceful people, and they are peacemakers, and they are pursuing after righteousness. Now note, he's talking about a pursuit, not an accomplishment. He's not saying... uh, Christians are always peacemakers and are always righteous because we cannot uh, attain to that standard. We're still in the flesh. We still have our humanity. But what matters and what God sees is the pursuit of peace and the pursuit of righteousness. Christians are distinctively peacemakers. Jesus uh, said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That ought to be one of the distinguishing marks of Christians. We don't look for fights. We don't cause fights. We don't initiate fights. We don't stir up trouble. We don't make things more difficult for people. We try to allay conflict, and we try to put people at, at rest and at ease. We try to resolve conflict when we when we find it. Now, sometimes that's not possible. Paul uh, puts the qualifier in, a, in, in his statement in Romans when he says, as far as it lies within you, seek peace with all, all men and women. Sometimes uh, people won't let us be peaceful. They, they want to fight. And uh, we should never seek peace at all costs. As James says, the wisdom is from above is first pure and then peaceable. We should seek truth at all costs, and sometimes in the pursuit of truth, we have to face into a difficult situation and cause unrest. But by and large, the distinguishing mark of Christians is that they just don't go through life making trouble for people. Because they don't have to. They don't have anything to prove. They don't have to defend themselves. They can be quiet in their love, as our, as, our, as our Lord is. They don't have to be self-protective, you see. They can let things go, and when, when people say hard and harsh things, they don't have to respond. They don't always have to duke it out with people to get get their way. They're, they're able to be more relaxed and more at ease about life because they know who they are. They know they're the sons of God. Someone told me a couple of weeks ago that when he was in junior high, he was a little skinny uh, kid, and and he used to pretend when he'd walk down the halls that he was a karate expert. And when someone would jostle him, he would, uh, he would think, you know, I could take this guy out if I wanted to, but uh, I'm going to let it go this time. His strength enabled him to to let things go by that normally he would react to. Or I think of Clark Kent, who's sort of the archetypical gentle man who could uh, defend himself if he wanted to, but permits himself to be pushed around because he's actually Superman. He doesn't have anything to prove. And neither do we. You are a son of God. There's incredible dignity in that position. Your name is written in heaven. You don't have to protect yourself. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to defend yourself. You're a very worthwhile person, even if other people don't think so. You don't have to be dependent upon the way they feel about you. You don't have to be hooked into them. If they don't like you, that's all right, because God likes you. If they say harsh and cruel and unkind things about you, that's okay, because God likes you. We should be peacemakers wherever we go. Second uh, characteristic of a mere Christian is that he or she is seeking sanctification, without which the author says you you cannot see God. Interesting statement because the point seems to be that this is not an option for Christians. Christians ought to be characterized by an increasing degree of likeness to Christ. We grow, as Paul puts it, from glory to glory to one degree of likeness to Christ to the next. That's what we pursue. We don't always accomplish it, but we pursue after likeness to Christ. And if we are not willing to deal with sin, if we will not join God's side against our sin, if we're not willing to sit in judgment on our sin, if we're not willing to pray about those sins that are habitual and and difficult for us. If we can justify a non-Christian lifestyle, then we may not be Christians at all. I don't know exactly what the author has in mind when he says we will not see God's face, but this concept of seeing God's face is one that keeps showing up in the New Testament. And I think what he's saying is that one day we're going to have an eternal face-to-face friendship with God. That's what we're made for. That's our destiny. It's not true of dogs or cats or pigs, no matter how much they're honored today, but it's true of human beings that human beings are going to see God face to face. We can be the friend of God, and we will be the eternal friends of God, and so we should we should cooperate with God in His changing us, because one day we're going to be like Him, and we're going to be able to fellowship with Him forever. And if we're not willing to cooperate, we may not be Christians. I thought of uh, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians when I read this uh, passage in Hebrews this past week. Uh, Apparently, there was a matter of uh, one Christian going to law against another, uh, litigation uh, before non-Christian courts. is something that Paul was very much concerned about. And... uh, he says the, the problem is you're wronging and defrauding one another and that you're brothers. It's like one brother suing another within the family or something terribly wrong uh, with, that, uh, with that activity. And Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. That's the bottom line for Paul, because that apparently was the problem in Corinth. They were swindling one another, defrauding one another financially. And so uh, the bottom line for him is swindling, but uh, he, he uh, puts in this list a number of other activities, fornication, idolatry, homosexuality, covetousness, drunkenness, and so forth. It's quite a shock to those of us who are being told today that that gayness is the moral equivalency of uh, being left-handed or something of that nature. But Paul says you cannot justify a gay lifestyle and call yourself a Christian. If you're gay, we love you and we want you here and we want to minister to you and and we want to be your friend and we want to care for you. But you, you need to resist that temptation. You need to join God's... Uh, Plan to to deal with that sin. God is for you against that sin and you need to cooperate with him. If you're swindling someone and justifying it, you you cannot do so in the name of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. It's not that Christians don't occasionally fall into these sins. It's that we cannot make a lifestyle out of them. We cannot justify them and call ourselves Christians because one of the marks of a son of God is that he or she is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. If you have the life of God within you, that life has to be expressed, and it's expressed in a desire for God-likeness. And if we're not becoming more and more like God and seeking that, running after it, pursuing it with all of our heart, then then we may not be Christians at all. Remember the folks to whom this book is addressed, who, some of whom were vitally Christian, some were not. They were only nominally Christian. They were just Christians in name and And they were thinking about bailing out, going back to Judaism. And and, and this book is written to get people to think seriously about where they are if you are truly regenerated. The author is saying, you will go on. And if you're not going on, then, as Paul would put it, you need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You may not be a believer at all. God is, is seeking you. He's hungering and thirsting after you. He's longing to draw you to himself. He's not... Put off by your your disobedience, but nevertheless, your your lifestyle of disobedience may well be an indication that you do not yet belong to Him, and, and the writer wants us to take that very seriously. We cannot we cannot uh, trivialize this truth. It's very serious. Now, um, there is a a way. To produce peacefulness and sanctification, verse 15. This is how it's done. Seeing to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Seeing to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. As Paul put it when he wrote to Titus, it's grace that teaches us to be godly not the law. It's not God hammering on us. It's not the big stick. It's not even the fear of judgment and condemnation. It's God's gracious, loving efforts in our lives. It's His tenderness toward us. It's His kindness. It's His mercy. That's what draws us to repentance. George MacDonald tells uh, about a time when he was walking through a cemetery, and he came across a tombstone that stood over the grave of a Martin Elginbrod. And inscribed on the tombstone was the epitaph, Here lies Martin Elginbrod, have mercy on my soul, O God, as I would do if I were God and ye were Martin Elginbrod. That's what we all cry out for. We cry out for mercy. We don't want justice. Oh, my goodness. I don't want God to be just. If he were just, where would I stand? What I need is mercy. And he has been so merciful. He has been so kind. He has been so loving. That's why Paul says in Romans 12. I beseech you on the basis of the mercy of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, you see, we know all this theology. We've got it straight. We are saved by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We know the book of Romans. We know the book of Galatians. But has it traveled from here to here? See, most of us are still high achievers. We're still uh, thinking like uh, John Houseman, remember the old character actor who who did uh, some commercials for some insurance company and Every once in a while on television, we we earn our we get our money the old-fashioned way. We earn it, and that's the way we that's the way we approach salvation. We think if if we read the Bible more, if we go to church more, if we memorize the Scripture more, if we witness more, clean our act up a bit more, a little more spit and polish, and God will love us. He'll approve of us. I want to say it's just the other way around. God already loves you. He already likes you. He already approves of you. He likes you like you wouldn't believe. There isn't any way you can clean yourself up enough to gain one iota more approval than you already have. You are deeply loved by God. Now, since that's true, He he wants us to pursue after Him. He wants us to grow, to become more like Him. I uh, I have it's just an observation in mind that People who try to change their life by law often end up being hardliners. They're hard on themselves and they're hard on others. They can't forgive others and they can't forgive themselves. Legalism tend, tends to invade and infect every part of our life. But those who understand grace are gracious. There's a special sensitivity. There's a there's a heart warmth. There's a wisdom within. There's a gentle uh, gentleness that uh, only the grace of God can. Uh, can produce as James puts it the wisdom that's from above is first pure then peaceable gentle full of mercy easy to be entreated you don't flare up get angry when, when they're criticized full of mercy and good works See? it's that kind of character beauty of character that grace produces law can't do it only the grace of God can do it now uh, the writer goes on uh, to explain for us some of the impediments to grace. Some of us find it hard to receive that grace. Some are, in the event, in the case of those to whom he writes this book, had even rejected that that grace. Verse fifteen: Seeing to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up cause, uh, springing up causes trouble. And by it many be defiled. Now I should explain that this is a quotation from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 29. And I want to read the original text from which that quotation is taken. This is Moses speaking. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone of silver and gold, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Now, given that quotation, I don't believe the author is here talking about uh, our bitterness toward other people. It is true that uh, bitterness can defile others. Nor is he talking primarily about bitterness toward God. He's rather talking about a root that is bitter to God. And he's talking about idolatry. Idolatry is the root that God finds exceedingly bitter and which can defile our whole being as well as defile those around us. Idolatry keeps us from seeking after the grace of God. And we say, well, I'm not an idolater. You know, I don't dance around the bales and I don't give my uh, worship and my adoration to the Asherah. And, but you see, idolatry is nothing more or less than a false centering of ourselves. Whatever matters most to us is what we worship. And uh, the way to know what you worship is to ask yourself, what's your predominant thought? What does your mind think about when you're not thinking about anything else. When you shift your mind into neutral, where does your mind go? What's the first thought that you have when you get up in the morning? Inevitably that is what we're worshiping. Some of us worship appearance. We have to look a certain way. We have to dress a certain way. Some of us worship, uh, our, our physical makeup. You know, whether we're thin or muscled or whatever your particular criterion is. Some of us worship athletic uh, achievement and accomplishment and winning and success in business. Some of us worship our retirement package, our IRAs and our TSAs and our our stock portfolio. Some of us worship our cars, you know, all sorts of things we can worship. And I don't know what, what your object of worship is. I know what I struggle with. And uh, the problem is we try to get our worth from, worth from those uh, idols, and they never produce for us. They always lead us astray. And they keep us from taking hold of the grace of God. Because we can only have all of God when we center all of our being on him. We have that portion of God that we desire. If you want all of God, you have all of him. As Jesus put it, you you have what you want. If you want all of God, that's what you'll have. Second uh, deterrent uh, is what he calls being immoral and godless, verse 16, that there be no immoral... Or godless, profane is the word, someone who has no spiritual values, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, disqualified is the word, he was not qualified to receive it. Uh, For he found no place of repentance in Isaac. He's not talking about God here, it's his father, Isaac who would not change his mind because he saw God's sovereign activity in the blessing being bestowed upon Jacob rather than Esau. And I, I commented last week, or a week before last, or whenever it was I was here last, uh, that uh, uh, that uh, Isaac said when he had bestowed the blessing upon Jacob, and he shall be blessed. He saw that despite Jacob scheming and conniving and skullduggery, that it was God's plan to bless this young man. Why? Because Jacob, though he was, uh, fairly crooked in his ways, had a heart for God. He wanted God and his blessing upon that family more than anything else in the world. He went about it the wrong, went about getting it the wrong way. If he had waited, God would have given it to him in a proper way. Man, God doesn't condone, didn't condone his behavior on that occasion when he uh, conned his brother out of his inheritance and out of his blessing. But God did see his heart. Now, if you don't know the story, uh, God promised Abraham that his family would be the family through which the promised seed would come. The Messiah would come through Abraham's line. One of his descendants would bring the man into the world who would who would save the world, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of of the world. Abraham was that he you know he. He was uh, he concentrated on that that promise. He believed it with all of his heart. And he passed that on to Isaac. And Isaac had the same attitude toward that promise. He valued that inheritance, that blessing, that promise, more than anything else in his life. He centered upon God. And so did Jacob, who was uh, Isaac's son. But Esau, who was Jacob's brother, couldn't care less. He was a profane man. As the Bible puts it, didn't have any, didn't put any stock in spiritual values. Loved to hunt and fish and hike and eat and drink and fight. And, uh, you know, he, he just, he never gave God the time of day. He had no interest in spiritual things. Uh, I have some friends like that. I mean, you know, their whole life is, is uh, centered on Coors and hot cars and uh, cruising bars. And that's all they care about. Now, there's nothing wrong with with hot cars, there's nothing wrong with hunting and fishing, but if that's your whole life, you see, if that's what a person is living for, then the Bible would have to say that that's, that's a profane person. They have no spiritual values, no desires any higher than, than the level of what they can see and do and eat and taste and touch and feel. And that was Esau. Now, that's the other thing that can turn us away Idolatry can do it, centering on the wrong object, a false centering of self on something other than God, and the other thing is just indifference to spiritual matters. It's what the old theologians called acedia, spiritual sloth, just indifference to the spiritual world. And I'm convinced that no real Christian can ever ultimately become an idolater, nor can they ultimately be guilty of, of this kind of profanity. Oh, from time to time, we may struggle with indifference toward God, but see, it bothers us. That's the difference. And the fact that it bothers us is God calling us back to himself. If we really belong to him, then we cannot give ourselves to anything other than God, not in any ultimate sense, and we cannot be totally, utterly indifferent to to God. You see, the profane person is the person who trips through life without a serious thought of accountability, that there's any reckoning, that he owes God anything, he or she just lives for himself, like the animals do. Never, as, as Pascal said, looks up from licking the earth. They're just bound to the earth. But the true believers uh, can't go that route. They just can't. The Spirit of God will not permit it. He keeps nagging and hassling and, and hurting, if he has to, to get our attention until we realize what we're doing. And he draws us back to the grace of God. Now, um, verse 18 and following, or another uh, is another of these uh, warning sections. There are five in the book. This is the final warning. Again, just so you understand the reason for these warnings, the writer is addressing himself to a congregation very much like this. Some of you are vitally Christian. You have acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord, and even though you're struggling, you, you want your life to be conformed to his character. You're submitted to him. You're seeking the kingdom of God. You're hungry and thirsting after righteousness. Others of you are only nominally Christian. You have the name of being a Christian, but you really don't care. Now, this writer was really concerned about people like that and so are we this does not mean that you are finally and ultimately lost but it means that we, we need to take stock you need to take this seriously that you cannot trivialize with God we cannot just trip through life and thumb our nose at God we must take very seriously what he has to say because as he's going to go on to say our God is a consuming fire He consumes everything that he cannot purify, and he purifies everything that he cannot consume, and he will shake and consume and shake and consume until there's nothing left but God. This is serious business that we're talking about. And we're concerned about you, deeply concerned about you, if you're indifferent to spiritual things. And so is God. That's why he keeps reaching out to you. That's why he keeps putting you in the... In the company of Christians, that's why you these strange things happen to you that alert you to your need for God. That's why you can't get away from him. He's the hound of heaven pursuing you. He's worried about you. So is this writer. wants us to take this seriously. And what he does is contrast two mountains. Interesting approach. Verse 18. Four. Uh, incidentally, this, uh, this warning section comes right off of the section about Esau. Because he is one who begged off, as we'll see. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and, and a whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged off, is the word. They refused to hear, they didn't want to hear anymore, that no further word should be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command if even a beast touches the mountain, they will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that even Moses said, "I am full of fear and trembling." But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the Judge of all, into the spirits of righteous men made perfect, into Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse, uh, that's the same word that's translated begged in verse 19, that you do not beg off, you do not resist or refuse to hear the one who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him, that is those at the foot of Sinai, who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which cannot be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now let me try to explain, the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which cannot be shaken, as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now let me try to explain in the two or three minutes that I have left what he is saying in this, in this text. He's contrasting two mountains, Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, the place where the law was given, and Mount Zion in the holy city in Jerusalem, the place which represents God's dwelling place with his people. He bases his uh, description of Sinai on Moses' recollections in Exodus 19 and 20. Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law. People were terrified. There was a terrible earthquake. The earth shook, and a dark cloud covered the mountain, lightning storm, fierce whirlwind, and and the people were, were scared out of their wits. Even Moses was frightened, we're told. And uh, the mountain was so charged with holiness that if an animal inadvertently wandered onto the mountain, it, it contracted the holiness of the mountain and could th- therefore never be touched again because people's lives or safety was jeopardized by the presence of that animal. So it had to be killed from afar. It had to be struck through with a dart or it had to be stoned. So they, they couldn't touch the animal. Here was this terrible event where God's character was manifest on Mount Sinai. and people People shook. They were so frightened. They couldn't stand the sight of, of, of the Lord. And uh, it's a picture of terrible judgment, awful judgment. And the prospect of judgment for those that uh, have spent their whole lives sinning, and that includes all of us, were it not for the grace of God, every one of us would tremble with fear at the thought of standing before God. We do not want justice. If we receive justice, where would we stand? And uh, the author says, no, no. No, you're never going to have to face that prospect. You're never going to stand at the foot of Sinai and hear these awful words, this terrible law, this this uh, frightening uh, judgment. You'll never be exposed to any of that because you've come to another mountain. Those of you that have committed your lives to Jesus Christ as Lord. Those of you that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those that are seeking His face. Have gathered around Mount uh, Zion. Now, he's not thinking about the physical mountain in Jerusalem. It's still there in Jerusalem. He's rather talking symbolically about God's dwelling place, which is right here in Boise, Idaho. It's, it's all over the world, wherever Christians gather. And the description that he gives here reminds me of our family camps. You know, here, here's, uh, here's all the angels gathered around God on his throne, and they're giving him worship and they're there to serve us. And uh, here we are. We're described as the church of the firstborn. The firstborn is our Lord. That's a term of dignity. The firstborn got all the inheritance. And our Lord, because he went through the cross, received the glory. He's come into his own. He has everything that's coming to him. And now he wants to bestow that upon us. We are the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Do you realize that? God has your name in a book. He knows your first name. He he, he, he he, loves you. Cares about you. Thinks you're very important. You're awfully significant in his eyes. The disciples went off once a preaching junket and they came back all excited about casting out demons. Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice at what you do. Rejoice at what you are. You're one of God's sons. You gather around the Father on Mount Zion with all these angels and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. He's talking about the Old Testament saints. They're there too. Uh, They're they're waiting to be made perfect, as Hebrews says, until we come into our own. They're all gathered with us. We're there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and and, uh, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, Hezekiah and, and Deborah and... And, and all the greats of the Old Testament gathered with us and we're all gathered around Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and His sprinkled blood, sprinkled as a picture of forgiveness which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried for vengeance. Abel was killed by his brother and his blood cried out for vengeance. But you see, God will never, never avenge Himself on those that uh, are gathered around the father on mount zion there's no condemnation for those that are in christ jesus that's why i say it's like a like one of our church picnics or like uh, like our our family uh, conference this summer all the believers there gathered around the lord except uh, all of our children are grown up and we don't have to mess with that and uh there's no sin and there's no suffering and there's no sickness and there's no sorrow and there's everything that our hearts long for That being the case, since we're gathered around that gracious mountain, see to it, he says, that you don't refuse him. Well, what should we do? Verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service, acceptable worship, is the word, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire text tells us that he uh, God shook the earth when he gave the law at Mount Sinai, Haggai, quotes the book of Haggai, one of the minor prophets, to the effect that one of these days he's going to shake the earth again. And when he shakes the earth again, every institution that man has built is going to fall. Our constitution will fall, our democratic way of, of life, uh, all of the uh, schools that we've put so much uh, trust and confidence in, all the philosophies, all the psychologies, all the... The things that man has constructed uh, that has no eternal value, only has temporal value, is going to be shaken to the ground. Word of warning here about what we ought to put our confidence in, because we need to rely upon those things that will never be shaken. That's why he says, since we've received a kingdom, the kingdom of God, which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude. Christian life is so simple, I don't know why we make it hard. All God wants us to do is say thanks. That's all. You don't have to know a lot of theology to say thanks. You don't have to go to seminary to say thanks. You just have to be polite. That's all. You just have to have good manners. God says, I want to give you salvation. Thank you. I've died on the cross for your sins, to pay the penalty for all your sins, past, present, and future. I want to give you salvation. Thank you. I want to begin to work in your life and... And produce a likeness to Jesus Christ. Thank you. I I, I want to develop a sense of self-esteem in you. I want you to realize how worthy you are and how much you're worth in my eyes. I want you to feel real good about yourself. Thank you. Thank you. And then one of these days, I'm going to take you home to live with me forever. Thank you. That's all we have to do is say thank you. Have you ever said thank you? God wants to give. This is Father's Day. I got some nice cards and letters for my kids, and I got a book, and I got some other things. And Carolyn gave me a new camp stove, one of those things that you know that ignite all by itself, and I just love playing with it. And all I said was, "Thank you, thank you." That's all God wants of you. Just say thank you, and begin to worship Him. Now there is. uh, a note here about worshiping Him with reverence and awe. I don't have time to develop this further except to say that reverence and awe are not incompatible with love and trust because our God is a consuming fire. Can't trifle with God. He's our Father, but uh, there still is an awesomeness and a majesty, some majesty and a grandeur about our Lord that ought always to make us reverence and worship Him with awe. We never get away from that sense of of the awesomeness of God. I had a book. I need to go... Excuse me just a minute. Don't leave. Most of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's the first of uh, C.S. Lewis's books for children. There's a wonderful... uh, description of, uh, of the king uh, remember the beavers the friendly beavers that gathered the four children in began to tell them about the true, true ruler of Narnia Mrs. Beaver explains if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking they're either braver than most or else just silly that's so true. If, if you can read these passages in the book of Hebrews, if you can appear before the presence of God without your knees knocking, there's something wrong, something wrong. Either we don't understand the awesomeness of God, or we don't care. Then, said Lucy, he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Then I also thought of uh, Kenneth Graham's uh, little story, The Wind in the Willows. Uh, we've read that book a number of times. I keep it in the trailer and occasionally just drag it out, read uh, a page or two. I don't know if Graham is a Christian or not. I suspect he may be because there are some... Uh, just uh, there, there's some of the figures and symbols that he uses are so, uh, so Christ-like. And there's one, uh, there's one story about rat and mole who were putting on the Thames. And they encountered the helper and friend. And uh, Graham capitalized the H and the F, helper and friend. There was this numinous, awesome, mysterious presence that frightened them both. And uh, Mole said, Rat, are you afraid? Rat murmured, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Capital H. Oh, never, never. And yet, oh Mole, I am afraid. Our God is the consuming fire. I don't know where you are spiritually this morning. I would uh, ask that you would think very seriously about what we've been talking about. We're not playing for nickels and dimes. That's not why we came into this world. We came into this world for one reason, so we can know God and enjoy Him forever. And if we miss that goal, it doesn't make any difference what else we achieve. We've missed the meaning of life. Let's pray. I'd like to ask again that if you take a moment to uh, think about your relationship to Christ, if you've never surrendered, <coughs> pardon me, If you've never surrendered to His Lordship, and you're aware that you never have, this is this is the Lord speaking to you. He's touching your heart. This is another opportunity. He's giving you a chance to respond to His love. Just say thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for giving me eternal life. Thank you for the promise of. Uh, life eternal with you. Thank you for all that you came to do and have done for me. Thank you. Thank you. That's all you have to do. Thank him that he's uh, sent his Holy Spirit to live within you, to produce in you a greater measure of holiness than you ever imagined before. To rid you of the habits that have uh, tyrannized you and the guilt over the past that dogs your track. just wants to give he will give you himself which is all you need in order to face whatever demands lay ahead just uh, just thank him thank him for that and then thank him for coming into your life he said if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I'll come in he's the God who cannot lie he said he'll come in and he will come in Lord, we do thank you for this reminder again that you you are just what we need in life. We have tried so hard to make it alone. We realize we cannot do it. We're made for you and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Lord, help us to be peacemakers. Help us to learn to absorb abuse and criticism and to live with difficult people in a loving and gracious way. Help us to learn how to communicate love to them. And we would ask for a for growth in grace. Help us to appreciate the environment in which we live and in which we grow and that the wonderful potential that we have because you keep giving and keep providing and, and you never forsake us. Thanks so much. And as we move into another week, we would ask that your grace would surround us. We thank you that you've promised your presence, and we want to continue to trust you to lay hold of all that you have for us for whatever we have to face this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.